Please open your Bible to the book of Luke. We'll be continuing our series through Luke. We'll be examining chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. So this is Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seized him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, But we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke resumes the narrative with Jesus, Peter, John, and James coming down the mountain. They just witnessed a remarkable event. An event that Moses longed to see but only could catch a glimpse of. As they were coming down from the mountain, having witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, what might have been on the minds of Peter, John, and James? See, the text tells us they were silent and they did not tell anyone else what they had seen. But what might have been going through their minds as they trekked down that mountain? See, we're not informed how long it took for them to get down to the bottom of the mountain, but whatever they were thinking was probably not resolved by the time that they arrived. And how could such a moment in history just evaporate 
from their minds. But reality sets in as they reach the bottom of the mountain and realize that the disciples have much to learn, but thankfully a teacher with greater patience. So our theme this morning as we examine Scripture is the disciples' journey of learning continues. And we'll look at this at four points. They lack faith. They lack understanding. They lack humility. And lastly, or point number four, they lack tolerance. So once they reached the bottom of the mountain, work resumed and Jesus was met with a large crowd. Now this has been the rhythm for Jesus as we have seen through this portion of Scripture. Moments of solitude followed by large crowds. See, ministry, not isolation, is what Jesus is all about. This is different from Peter's intentions and motivation who wanted to set up camp at the top of the mountain. See, Jesus came not to glory in mountaintop experiences, but for the needs of his people, healing their pain. And it should not surprise us by now that when the large crowds gather around Jesus, that someone in the group requires his help. See, from the crowd, such a request comes. A man in the crowd cries out to Jesus, begging him to look at his son. It's interesting how the father describes his son as an only child. And Luke records this detail, and it's the third and final time that he does. Remember in chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus raised a man from the dead, the only child of a mother. But also in chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus raised the only daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. See, in this man's desperation, he describes his son in a way that Jesus Christ might hear. See, he had already begged Jesus' disciples to heal his son, but they could not. There was a desperation in the voice of this father who wants his child to be healed. And in the moment of desperation, the Spirit seizes that child. And the child suddenly cries out, convulses so much that he foams from the mouth and it shatters him so much that the spirit will not leave him and this would not be the most harsh demon possessed man that Jesus had healed remember in chapter 8 there was a demon possessed man who would break chains and send the man out into the wilderness other demon possessions would throw the person to the ground but Luke records in greater detail at this Boy convulses from the f- and foams from the mouth. The spirit breaks the boy down. He is crushed by it. So what seems to be a normal demon-possessed person to Jesus was not so easy for the disciples to heal because they were unable to cure him. Now, there was nine other disciples that did not trek up the mountain. During this time, we're not told if they had the opportunity to heal this boy or if it was the full 12. But regardless, they were unable to. 
And hearing the plea from the father to look at his son and that the disciples were unable to heal the boy, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? One commentator summarizes Jesus saying, Will you be so faithless and full of distrust? that you cannot execute the commission that I have given you. Jesus' words sting, but they remind you of how weak and distrustful you can be. See, the disciples would have seen Jesus perform this miracle many times, and they were given the power and authority to cast out demons. This was in the realm of their expertise. So why did they fail? Were they too complacent? Healing a demon-possessed man is something they have dealt with before. They believed that they could do it on their own power, forgetting that they needed to depend upon Jesus for everything. Did they lack faith? Was this demon possession greater than what they have ever seen before? So they did not believe that they had the power to heal this boy. Could it have been their intentions? Their motivations went from being an agent in God's kingdom to healing so that they could receive the glory. Maybe they wanted their name to be lifted up high. See, Jesus highlights how immature they were and how much they still had to learn. He uses Old Testament language from Deuteronomy chapter 32 the crooked and twisted generation, to illustrate the state of his disciples as they journey with him. They're immature and they're not yet ready. They do not understand that their power and authority were not a substitute for depending upon Jesus Christ. They lacked faith. So you must be full of faith and faithful to be effective tools in the kingdom of God. No matter what you're engaged in while laboring for Jesus Christ in his kingdom, you will be unsuccessful if you do not engage your work full of faith and are faithful. See, after the rebuke to the disciples, Jesus turned his attention to the Father and asks for the child to be brought to him. Once Jesus made this request, the boy was thrown to the ground by the demon and started convulsing, emphasizing the violent control that this demon had over this boy. But unfazed by the demon's antics, Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and heals the boy. See, Jesus shows his power and his authority, again, not over diseases or physical ailments that we can see, but also that he has the power over spiritual realm, something that is not visible to our eyes. See, there's nothing outside of Jesus Christ's control. Not spiritual dark forces, not a virus that wrecks havoc in your body. Jesus has power and authority over them all. So with this power and authority, the boy is healed and handed back to his father. And the crowds were astonished. 
of the majesty of God. And this has become common to the disciples, something that they witnessed all too often. The crowds were amazed by the work of Jesus, full of praise and full of adoration. The frenzy created because of the healing allows Jesus to teach his disciples a valuable lesson. See, for the disciples, even though they are faithless, Jesus Christ remains faithful. See, Christ is able when they are not. A further demonstration of their need continually for Jesus. And as we move on, let the scene of this crowd filled with adoration and amazement for God stay fresh in your mind because it's important for what Jesus has to say next. See, the crowds marvel at all that Jesus is doing, and he turns to his disciples and with strong language is about to teach them, enlightening them with a deeper knowledge of kingdom secrets than the crowds will receive. Jesus commands the disciples to let what he is about to say sink into their ears. He's trying to hammer this into the disciples that the Christ must suffer. They say repetition is the best teacher. So with the disciples' attention, Jesus reminds them of a conversation they had a week previous. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now Jesus conveys a similar message, but he changes it a bit. Last time, Jesus was a little bit more specific. He mentions the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. But here, in this instant, Jesus uses the hands of men. It's not a few, but the whole of humanity will reject Jesus. The opposition to the work is not done by a few leaders of an ethnic nation, but it's a human condition. It is the power of sin in the world, a human heart condition. It's the hearts of those who lived 2,000 years ago. It's in the heart of the world, and it's in your heart. Sure, you may love Jesus more than the world does, but you cannot for one second believe that you love Jesus as he ought to be loved. This is why self-reflection is so important in the Christian pilgrimage. Loving Jesus is not loving him a little bit more than what the world does. Because that's hardly anything at all, if anything at all. See, self-examination probes your heart to make sure you're loving Jesus as you ought to love him. And when you realize that you fail at this perpetually, you come to the cross and you have hope that there will be a day when you will love him as he ought to be loved. Because when you are faithless, he remains faithful. See, not only is Jesus using repetition so the message would sink into the ears, but timing. He's preparing his disciples because Jesus knows where things are headed. This is the second time in a little over a week that Jesus foretold his death. 
And despite his current popularity, Jesus is explaining how fickle the crowds will be. Things are about to change. The ones marveling with amazement will be the ones calling for Jesus to be crucified. They're amazed now, but they will betray him later. It's like Christ saying, look at all these people here marveling at the works of God, astonished at the majesty of God. It is the same crowd that will turn on me and deliver me over to be killed. And it will happen soon. But it was a message that did not penetrate the ears of the disciples because they did not understand. And it's not because this message was overly complicated. The message was simple. Jesus is going to be betrayed by humanity. So if it's not the message that's a problem, what was the problem? Say they misunderstood because they did not understand how this could take place. Remember, the disciples had those preconceived ideas of who and what Christ is. But it's only Jesus who can define who and what the Christ is. Now put yourself in the apostles' sandals for a second and think about this. And we can see maybe the difficulty that they had. So no matter the crowds, the soldiers, or the armies, or the kings of this world, how could Jesus ever lose a battle where he would be delivered over to the hands of men? How is this possible? Remember, he commanded the winds and the waves. He had power and authority over spiritual forces. He restored people to life, and he could heal disease and restore men's sight. Not to mention he could feed a multitude of people with a few fish and some bread. And just as a further illustration, before his death, he restores a body part that had fallen off of a man. So how do you defeat someone like that? It would be like trying to defeat someone in chess who had a board full of queens and all you had was pawns. When you sit down, you might as well just lay over your king. See, Jesus had all the means to go undefeated. And it's easy then to sympathize with the disciples. How is this going to happen? How can Christ be delivered over to be killed? Jesus was handed over into the hands of men by God's deliberate plan of foreknowledge. And because of the wickedness of men, they put him to death by nailing him on the cross. The progression of the disciples' misunderstanding goes from not understanding to being unable to understand. And the text does not tell us why this is happening or by whom. Is it divine intervention or a spiritual force? What we know is that the disciples are those who whom the kingdom secrets have been revealed. And if they should have known, the fear and shame of not knowing could be why they did not have the answer. So by their own inaction, filled with fear, they do not ask. The disciples will have to be patient, waiting for the right time. They need to learn to trust, depend on Jesus, knowing that he is in control and the plan of God unfolds. 
See, the fact that the disciples do not understand means that they do not understand their own role in the kingdom. And this becomes clear in the next point as they squabble about who is the greatest. But it's also telling. If you do not know who Jesus is, you will not understand your role in the kingdom of God. And you'll end up squabbling about things that do not mean anything in the kingdom of God. See, knowing who Jesus Christ is helps you understand what you should be doing. So look at Christ. Meditate. Understand Him. And like the Father says in the Transfiguration, listen to Him. And you will understand your path in this pilgrimage. So your preconceived notions do not help you understand who Jesus is. You need to let Him tell you who He is. So through these first two points, it would be easy to sympathize with the disciples in their lack of faith and understanding. If that's where the text stopped, we could understand. But the next two points show the lack of maturity in the disciples. And now think about this with me. In a little over a week, Jesus has explained to the disciples the start of the most important event in human history. Jesus Christ suffering, his death, and his resurrection. They have inside information about an important event in history. And what do the disciples decide to speak about? An argument breaks out about who is the greatest. The twelve have a lot to learn about the servant on a path of self-denial. They lack humility. See, pride started to bubble in the disciples' heart. The crowds are marveling at Jesus Christ's work, astonished by God's majesty. The twelve miss Jesus' warning about the fickle crowds. They are influenced by what the crowds say about Jesus. And the disciples wonder among themselves, because of their proximity to Jesus, who ranks greater among whom? And Jesus, knowing their hearts, takes a child and shows them how ranking works in the kingdom of God. Jesus takes that child and he explains in verse 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he, is, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So what about this child is significant? Well, first, the child, perhaps, is a child that had just been restored to health by Jesus. And he's placed beside Jesus, suggesting great honor for that child. Now, honor is a status that a child did not receive in the ancient world. So one commentator points out in Judaism, children under 12 cannot be taught the Torah. And so to spend time with them was considered a waste. In Roman culture, children were also placed at the bottom of the social ladder. They were the weakest and most vulnerable, with little value as human beings because they would not likely survive till adulthood especially with the demand for human labor until children could contribute, they simply were the least among you. Especially with the demand for human labor. Sorry, that's 
reserved for washing feet of those entering your home. Jesus had just made a statement that undermines everything that the Greek, the Roman, and the Jewish world would understand about status. It's a paradox, much like when he said, if you were to lose your life, you must keep it. Or those who will lose their life will keep it. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about associating with great people. It's about receiving the lowly, the brokenhearted, the ones who are cast down. So when you receive the lowly, you're receiving Jesus. And when you receive Jesus, you receive the one who sent Jesus. And isn't this what God has illustrated with the nation of Israel? God did not choose to associate with Israel because they were a great nation. What does God say about Israel in Deuteronomy 7.7? It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord sets his love on you and and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. God associates with the lowly, and it's their proximity to him that makes Israel a great nation. And is it the same for you? God chose to associate with you not because you were anything. You were a sinner. You hated God. But he chose to associate with you and offered you his only begotten son as a sacrifice for all of your iniquities so that you can associate with God by faith in Jesus Christ. You've been reconciled and now are sons and daughters of the living God. God chose to receive the lowly nation of Israel. God chose lowly sinners as the bride for his son. God chose to receive your, or Christ chose to receive your sins, and now your union with Christ is what makes you great. God chose what was lowly in the world, and it's with that same lens that you should view the world. See, Jesus knew the intentions of the disciples' heart, and he understands and knows your heart. You cannot hide an unwillingness to receive the lowly. Because an unwillingness to receive the lowly means an unwillingness to receive Christ. And an unwillingness to receive Jesus means an unwillingness to receive the one who sent him. See, pride in the heart of a Christian is a monstrous sin. Everything that you have comes from God. Nothing inherent in you made you a desirable choice for God. All you have to offer God is your sin. See, greatness is not inherent in a person. Greatness is only found in your proximity to Jesus Christ. It's only established by one's relation to Jesus. Your proximity to Jesus is best understood with humility because it's not in and of yourself, but it's a gift of God, something not warranted or deserved. Now the conversation pivots from the status of the disciples to the status of others. John abruptly swings to a conversation about someone they saw casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the disciples are not getting it. 
Because right after Jesus explains to them how they ought to include even the lowliest of people, John explains how they were trying to exclude someone. Now what motivated the twelve to attempt to exclude this man from the service of Jesus? It shows the attitude of the disciples. Are the disciples so wrapped up in their greatness that no one else could do the work that they were doing? Maybe they were jealous. Having seen someone do what they were just unable to do, maybe because that John Doe did did it with a proper motivation in the name of Jesus Christ. See, John also shows a prideful presumption. As John says, following after us, including the twelve and those who are following Jesus. When, as the last three points have shown, following Jesus is not something that they fully understood. They lack faith. They lack understanding. They lack humility. Whatever the motivation was for the disciples to forbid this man provoked a response from Jesus. Jesus' command is swift and succinct. Do not prevent or hinder someone from doing such things, for the one who is not against you is for you. Simple and practical. If what he's doing is from God, it will succeed. But if not, it will fail. Why hinder someone who's trying to help you? The reminder from Jesus is that the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, so why try to limit it even more? And what did Paul, remember Paul who was Saul in his zeal for the church, a man with great zeal, what does he say about those who preach Christ in the book of Philippians? Those who preach Christ out of envy, of rivalry, of selfish ambition? He rejoices because Christ is being preached. Is it the ideal situation? No, of course not. But the name is going out into the world, and that should make us all rejoice. See, at the most basic level, the disciples failed. Jesus had admonished the disciples to honor those with no status at all, but they refused to collaborate with someone who did not share their status. I think it's a commentary summarized this so helpfully. It said the disciples are given access to the secrets of the kingdom so that they might perceive and the power and authority so that they might exercise demons. Yet they are unable to do either. Although his primary identity is not with Jesus' inner circle, this unnamed exorcist is nonetheless representing as having faith that wells up the fruitfulness of effective ministry. See, the disciples' ignorance is ironic. For the twelve had greater access and opportunity to know Jesus, yet they remain unknowing. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have looked at the folly of the disciples, but as we close, let's focus on the patience of Jesus Christ. And that same patience that was extended to the disciples. Your Savior extends to you.
as you make your way through this Christian pilgrimage, lacking in different ways and in different times, faith, understanding, humility, and tolerance. He does not leave you nor forsake you, but he walks beside you with an unshakable patience as you learn more about him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves knowing that we cannot live our lives full of faith, full of understanding, full of humility, and full of tolerance. That we are weak and sinful people, just like the disciples, Lord. We do not understand. We do not have the faith that we ought to. Lord, we do not walk through this life with the humility of knowing what has been done for us. Lord, and also we do not tolerate those. But we thank you for not only giving to us a Savior who atones for all our sins, but a Savior who is patient with us, an unshakable patience as we walk with him, as he teaches us. We thank you that he does not love us as we should but he loves us because he loves us. And it's through Christ's name that we pray. Amen.